0: Is all that because I called you out last Sunday for not giving me a grand introduction? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. Travis told me before the service that, uh, Sean introduced that, we're going to be talking about uh, just how can God be good and the doctrine, reconciling that with the doctrine of hell today. Travis warned me before the service, it's going to be a little lighthearted. It's going to be probably a little more difficult for you to segue into that. And uh, I see you were right, but um, with God's help, he'll meet with us. We're going to start in Isaiah 6, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and then I'll pray, and we'll begin. So if you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Father, we need you in this hour. Lord, we need you to come. And enable all of us to see clearly. What is at stake in the gospel? The gospel call. That you are beckoning people from the ends of the earth to come to you to seek refuge in you while there is still The light of day offered them. Joy, unending, boundless euphoria in your presence for all eternity offered now freely. Offered to those who cannot purchase it on their own, who have no merit, who have no right to it. But offered freely to all. Lord, I pray that you would sober us. Pray that you would grant us clarity as we just open up your word together and see what you have said in your word. And Lord, wherever we are on the spectrum of of dealing with the different um, criticisms of Christianity, of, of religion in general, and specifically just the idea of how you can be such a marvelous, gracious, compassionate God. And yet your word says clearly that there is a place of punishment that will last forever for those who continue in their rebellion against you. Lord, I pray that nothing would be seen but you this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. For most people in America, the summer of 1910 came to a close um, relatively as quietly as any summer would have. In June, it was the, the first unofficial Father's Day was observed. In July, the first account of Paul Bunyan was published in the Detroit News. And in August, there was virtually nothing noteworthy that occurred in the nation for the majority of people who live in the states. That is, unless you lived in the northwestern part of the United States, in the states of Washington or Idaho and Montana. Because for many people who lived in these states, the month of August contained days that were perhaps the most frightening of their entire lives, days that they would never forget, they would remember for the rest of their lives. On August 20th and 21st, the Great Fire of 1910 occurred, which to this day is still recorded as the largest fire in American history and perhaps even world history, with some accounts. And in this fire, no one knows exactly how it started, exactly what caused it, exactly what time it was caused, And yet for two terrifying days and nights, this fire raged across three million acres spanning these three states. From eastern Washington all the way across Idaho, the northern part of Idaho into western Montana. By some accounts, some people say that there were roughly 3,000 individual fires occurring simultaneously burning, burning through the great forest in that region. Most of what was destroyed fell to hurricane-force winds that turned the fire into something of a blowtorch. These tornadic winds were so violent that the flames flattened out ahead, swooping to the earth in darting curves, causing some to believe that it was a red demon from hell that had been unleashed upon them and that the world was coming to an end. And for 86 people, the world as they knew it did come to an end and they died. One eyewitness who was caught up in the middle of this great fire says this. He says, the wind had had risen to hurricane velocity. Fire was now all around us. Banners of incandescent flames licked at the sky. Showers of large flaming branches were falling everywhere. The quiet of a few minutes before had become a horrible din. The hissing, roaring flames, the terrific crashing and rending of Falling timber was deafening, terrifying. Men rushed back and forth trying to help. One giant man, crazed with fear, broke and ran. I dashed after him. He came back wild-eyed, crying, hysterical. The fire had closed in and the heat became intolerable. Now imagine if in the middle of this fire, this great fire in the northwest, that this same eyewitness in the middle of this chaotic frenzy, at the same time, he looked out towards the forest and he noticed a group of individuals who, whose reaction was completely contrary to the reaction we just described. A group of individuals that were completely unafraid. In fact, they were jubilant. They were overjoyed. They were beside themselves with joy. And these group of individuals clothed in a a shin veneer of flame resistant material dared to venture out into the middle, the center of the forest, into the center of the flames. And there they danced and sang and cried out for joy. And their cries continued to to increase in volume and euphoria and hysteria and joy. I would argue that this picture, this latter picture, paints a more complete picture of what the Bible depicts for us in terms of what the end of time will be like. Both in view of what heaven, what what it will be like for those who are the redeemed to dwell in the presence of God. And yet for others, what it will be like who have continued in their rebellion against him. It is a picture of both heaven and hell in the same scene. This morning, I was given the task of answering the question, how can God be good and yet send people to hell? And basically what I want to do is in a bit of an unconventional way, I just want to walk through several scriptures, several Bible passages, and just let God's word sort of unfold for us. To support this argument. This is what I'm going to argue. The main point today is this. There cannot be the greatest good. Eternal life with God. Without there also being a hell. Because. There is one thing that is central to them both. And that is the presence of God. Let me repeat that. There cannot be the greatest good. Which is eternal life with God without there also being a hell, because there is one thing that is central to them both, and that is the presence of God. When God comes to display the full panorama of his beauty that will fill the entire cosmos, to those who are united with Christ, who are hidden in Christ, they will experience it as light, as life-giving, his presence, his magnanimous presence. And yet, This same presence will be experienced by those who are unshielded by Christ, who are unclothed by Christ as flames, devouring, consuming flames. It is his presence that causes both of these reactions, because the entire cosmos will be filled with his presence. When we think of how the Bible describes the fire of hell, all this imagery of hell fire that we see in the Old Testament, specifically and acutely in the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus. I would argue that it's, it's more helpful to understand that the fire is, is not so much a place separated from God as much as it is an aspect of the being of God himself. In order to prove this, I want to walk through a couple of texts starting with Isaiah 6 and I'm just going to break down the sermon into four sections. And they are as follows. Number one. We see opposite reactions to the presence of God. The same presence of God. Number two. Hell is more presence than place. Number three. God's presence is like a fire. And finally, number four. Those clothed in Christ delightfully dwell in that fire in the midst of the fire there are opposite reactions to the presence of god hell is more presence than place god's presence is like a fire and those clothed in christ delightfully dwell in the fire now i just want to go through a series of texts for the remainder of this sermon and just walk through them together explore them together and pray that the lord would help us to see more clearly Starting in Isaiah 6. Here we see opposite reactions to the same presence of God. Isaiah 6 opens up. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, this is one of the most popular passages in in. Christianity, you might have heard it in several sermons before and different books that you've read. But this depiction that Isaiah, the prophet sees, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died is giving us a sort of time reference of, of when this vision occurred. He sees this vision that absolutely stuns and floors him. He sees the Lord of glory high and lifted up with the train of his robe. So great, so extensive, so great that it fills the entire temple, the entire room in which he is standing. And it is important to know that what Isaiah is seeing here is a vision of something that will happen at the end of time. It is a vision for the future. We know that in part because when we look at the gospel of John, John the writer, he quotes this chapter of Isaiah in another chapter, Isaiah 53. And he says in John chapter 12, Uh, Around verses 37 to 41, he says that these things that Isaiah talks about, he said these when he saw Christ in his glory, when he saw Christ's glory. Elsewhere in the same book, John says that Christ wasn't glorified until after he was crucified and buried and resurrected. That's when he ascended to his glory, where we read elsewhere in the New Testament that he's seated now at the right hand of the father, far above all principality and power and rival faction, far above in the heavenly places. This is a vision of the end of time that Isaiah is seeing here. And let's note what he sees. Above the Lord, it says, he sees seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covers his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Seraphim comes from the verb tsaraf to burn. These are burning ones. That's literally what their name means. And they're burning. The reason that they are described, that they are depicted as burning ones, is because of the proximity to which they are Close to the throne of God himself. The one who is the flaming fire. Who is described throughout scripture as a fire as we'll see later. They are the burning ones because they dwell in the presence of the one who is fire. And they are described. It says that they have two wings covering their face. Two covering their feet and two flying. The reason that they're covering their face is because they're shielding themselves from this overwhelming Beautiful vision of the Lord on his throne, the king of glory, shining in the full array of his majesty. They're shielding themselves. They're bracing themselves from this vision. And they're covering their feet because throughout the scriptures, going all the way back to Exodus, the idea of entering into the presence of God was a holy presence in which these seraphim knew to cover their feet. And we'll notice an interesting distinction with Moses when we look at Exodus chapter 3. But it says in verse 3 that these ones that were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it's the only time in Scripture when any adjective of God is repeated three times and The way that a Jew, a Hebrew writer, would emphasize anything is through repetition. This is the most emphasized attribute of the character and worth of God that we find throughout all of Scripture. There's no other attribute that is repeated three times in the entirety of Scripture. Holy, holy, holy. They are describing this God that he is... Completely in a class of his own. There is none like the Lord. There is none holy as him. He is far and away in every aspect of who he is. Superior. Infinitely so. Than every being. Even the highest of these seraphim. In glory. And We mentioned John before. The gospel writer John. He picks up also this language in the book of Revelation. He he describes we all know that Revelation is the last book of the the Bible describing this end of time scenario. And he picks up Isaiah's language here and he repeats it and actually amplifies it to better help us understand what's going on in this moment. He John also describes that these These beings that are in his presence are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And he adds that they don't cease crying this out day or night. Incessantly, they are overflowing with this praise to God. They never stop. It is incessant. It is continually overflowing. Now, Christ himself said that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks whether evil or good. It is out, out of what's overflowing in our hearts that we speak. What's being described in this scene, these angelic beings, the fact that they are incontrollable in how how much their hearts are, are overflowing and, and welling over with praise that they can't stop. What's being described here, I'll choose my words carefully, is very much in sync with what you might think of the union between a man and a woman. When a man and a woman come together and there is a climax, that's as far as I'll go, the involuntary overflow of, of delight and, and praise and euphoria, that's what's being described in this scene. Those who are sinless, Who are in the presence of God. They experience when they see the full array of his beauty. This this overflow of involuntary praise. That they can't stop. It continues to overflow and overflow and overflow. Day and night. John says in the book of Revelation. It never stops. That is what it's like for these creatures. These sinless beings who are in the presence of the Lord. And Isaiah says that they're saying this holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're describing a time in the future that will one day come in which God, his glory will be on full display throughout the cosmos. Revelation 21 and 22 help us to uh, get a, a better picture of it when they When they say that there will come a time when the lamb comes in the fullness of his glory, when there will no longer be any need for any sun, moon or stars or any other artificial source of light. The billions and billions of galaxies and the trillions of stars that exist in the sky will be useless and futile because the lamb himself will be the source of radiant light throughout all the cosmos. That's what they are describing here in Isaiah 6 when they say the whole earth is full of his glory. It's this scene. We would be incorrect in in reading what's happening here in Isaiah 6 and and looking outside on on a sunny and bright day and say, you know what, Isaiah, you're right. The whole earth is full of the glory of God. Just look how sunny it is outside right now. That's not what he's describing right here. What he's describing is the almost indescribable end of time when God's glory fills the cosmos. Verse 4 says, The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. There's significance to that imagery that we'll discuss in a minute. And yet, look at Isaiah's reaction. What we observe in Isaiah's reaction is the exact opposite reaction to the same portrayal of the vision of the presence of God, of the glory of God. In this scene, the reason I chose this scene is because I believe it's intended to depict what the divisive nature of the beauty of God that will occur at the end of time. On the one hand, you see beings who are overflowing in euphoric joy and ecstasy in his presence. They are burning, so to speak. They appear as those who are burning, so to speak, because of their proximity to God. And yet, in the same scene, you see a sinful man who completely feels like he's coming apart at the seams. His guilt overwhelms him. His, His guilt consumes him. He feels like he is Perishing, he says, woe is me, pronouncing a, a curse of death upon himself, saying, for I am lost. And the word lost can literally mean coming apart. He feels like he's, he's coming apart at the seams. He feels like he's perishing. He feels like he's literally in the act of, of dying in this moment. And it may be helpful to, to reference another passage in, in Psalm where this verb is actually used twice to describe those who go down to Sheol. Those who go down to Sheol, are, this word of, of, of perishing or, or coming undone is used to describe them. And there in, in Psalm 49 verses 12 through 17, you don't have to turn there. But just a few things that it says is that those who go down to Sheol, those who are, who are perishing or becoming undone, their form is consumed And that they have no place to dwell. And nothing that they carried in life, none of their glory, none of their beauty, none of their worth goes down with them. They descend to a place where they are forever barred from light itself. That's what Psalm 49 depicts for us. That is the experience that Isaiah is experiencing in this moment. And what causes it? He goes on to say, for I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. By Jewish tradition, Isaiah was a prophet who was, by all accounts, one of the most blameless men who ever lived. But according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah was one of the prophets who was sawed in half because he refused to ever denounce the name of Yahweh to those who tried to force him to do so. This blameless man, this upright man, by all our estimations, when he sees this glimpse of this future glory of the Lamb of God in the full display of his beauty, what he's immediately overwhelmed by is his own sin and the cesspool of sin in which he lives. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. The Lord has done nothing to we don't see any dialogue of the Lord that causes Isaiah to reflect in this way or or does anything directly to Isaiah to cause him to react in this way. It is simply the presence of God that causes Isaiah to realize his own sin when he's surrounded by the presence of the Lord. Just from seeing the king, he says, he feels like he's coming undone. He feels like one who is trapped in Sheol, trapped in the grave, trapped in the realm of the dead, forever lost and cut off from God. This, I believe, is a more helpful picture of understanding what the end time will be like, and specifically when it comes to the question of how can we understand the goodness of God and reconcile that with the idea of the doctrine of hell? And simply put, I would argue that when God comes, the greatest good that God can do is for all those who are longing for his appearing. To fully display, to to no longer hold back as he currently is doing, the full heat and light and beauty of his own majesty. That is our greatest longing. That is the greatest good that God can give to humanity. It will be so replete that it will fill the entire cosmos. There will be no place where God's glory will not shine. Darkness will cease to be in a matter of speaking. And it is specifically because God's glory is coming, that those who are unshielded by Christ, who have not hid themselves in the Holy One, they will experience it as hell fire. They will experience what Isaiah is describing in this scene for all of eternity. It it changes the argument. it, It changes the nature of the argument from thinking, God is simply one who chooses a group of people to save and says, You can be in my club, and then he takes another group of people and just throws them and discards them into this this, this place isolated from him, like it's completely arbitrary. That that it, that is a capricious, a capricious maneuver that is just sort of at a whim. And and if that were truly the case, if that were the best way to understand this, this end of time scenario then that would there would be more weight to that argument of how can god be good and allow that to happen but if that happens simply because god shows up and his beauty fills the entire universe and some experience in that way just because that is intrinsically who god is it changes the nature of the argument i would argue and basically, what I want to do is is walk through a couple of texts to to help flesh out how the Bible reveals that this is a, a helpful way of understanding the end of time, both for the redeemed and for those who are perishing. We had mentioned a moment ago uh, the book of Revelation. John, John continues to help us in the book of Revelation of understanding what it's like for those who are redeemed and understanding what it's like for those who are perishing. I want to compare two passages starting first in Revelation seven, verse 15 through 17. You don't have to turn there. Most of the, in fact, all of the verses that I'll reference now will be just in a litany of verses behind me. So I apologize for that, but God told me to do it. Revelation seven fifteen through seventeen. This is describing those who are the redeemed. It's describing those who are ransomed from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people who are now gathered into the presence of God. And in Revelation seven fifteen through seventeen says, "Therefore they, they these these redeemed ones, are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night, just like the angels." cry out incessantly, holy, 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 day and night. They are there continuously forever in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. They are sheltered, it says, with the presence of God. Being in the presence of God is like shelter for them. Contrast that with Revelation 14, verses 9 through 11. This is the part where he's describing all those who have aligned themselves with the beast, the, the, the false prophet who align themselves with Satan and have continued in their rebellion against the Lord, who have not united themselves with Christ. Revelation fourteen nine through 11 says... If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with the fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they will have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here again in Revelation, it's the presence of God that's causing two opposite reactions to two different groups of people. Those who are redeemed experience God's overwhelming presence as as shelter, as something that shields them, as something that comforts them, that causes them to no longer weep and cry over all of the atrocities that they have experienced in life. All of the evil, all of the injustices of life have been dealt away with. They are comforted by his presence. And yet at the same time, it is this presence that torments those who have not align themselves with him. Who experience this overwhelming sense of their own guilt. To their own shame. In light of his beauty. It's God's presence that is causing the same reaction in both. These opposite reactions. That's point number one. Number two. In light of this, I would argue that hell is more about presence than place. It's more helpful to think of of hell as the presence of God causing the torment and anguish of those who are in rebellion against him. As opposed to just this place that's, that's completely removed and isolated from the Lord. In light of what we just read in Revelation 14. I say that because I know that we have to evaluate the entire corpus of Scripture. And we inevitably think to places like Matthew 7 where Lord, the Lord Jesus is describing the end of time and he's saying that there will be those who have aligned themselves with him and there will be those who their whole lives they they, they put on a, a front uh, a veneer as if they were truly his disciples, and yet in the end they will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. And that idea of being apart from God has caused many people to to dwell on on hell as being this place that is completely removed from the presence of God. Yet when we evaluate the entire corpus of scripture, and we look at places like Revelation 14, it's it's not an adequate picture to just say that hell is just eternal separation from God, as if God's not there. We know that places like uh, Psalm 139, this, this, the psalmist is saying, where can I go to escape from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I descend down into Sheol, you are there. If I, if I make my uh, travel to the outermost parts of the sea, even there, your hand, your spirit will guide me. There is no place where the presence of God is not. And so just to, to think of when Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you, that Christ is not there at all in any manifestation whatsoever, that they are completely isolated from God does not do justice to Scripture. They are isolated from the, the fellowship and the friendship and the close proximity of God, but they are repelled from him because their own sin eats away at them in light of the full strength of his glory. And that's not to say that all sinners aren't confined to a certain place in the universe. There, there is precedence for that. But I'm just saying that it's, it's more helpful, it's more helpful to understand that what makes hell hell is because the presence of God causes those who are still in their sins To feel completely overwhelmed and consumed. Revelation chapter 6. Verses 15 through 17. It says, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? This this opening description is all the, the most the most powerful and seemingly fearless and brazen people who walk the face of this earth. The kings, the generals, the rich, those who seemingly have no problems, who have life in the grip of their own hands, their own destiny in their hands. And yet when the Lord appears, as one pastor said, when the Lord appears, even the most even the most ardent resister of God's grace will melt before him like a wax figurine before a blast furnace. That's what's being described in Revelation 6. And what is it that their own, what, what are they confessing themselves? What's coming out of their mouths? What are they so afraid of? It's the face, they say, of the lamb. His presence, his beauty is so overwhelming that it consumes them and devours them. Another passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through Describing the end, it says that Christ will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Interesting phrase here now away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes out that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all those who believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Now here it may seem that this is contradictory. It says away from the presence of the Lord, but depending on your translation, it may say that. It may say that uh, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. It's the presence of the Lord that causes it, and the glory of his might that causes it, Um, People say that this phrase can be translated either way, but when you look at it, and especially the fact that here Paul is actually quoting a part of Isaiah, a phrase that occurs three times in the book of Isaiah for the splendor of God's majesty, or when it says the glory of his might. And Isaiah describes it as it's it's this presence of God, it's the glory of his might that is what causes these people eternal destruction. It's better to translate this as it's the presence of the Lord. It's from this presence of the Lord, from the glory of his might that they're experiencing this agony. Specifically, it's Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10, where Isaiah depicts the same sort of scene as we thought, that we just saw in Revelation. When it says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his Majesty, the same phrase here in the Greek, the glory of his might, the splendor of his majesty. Again, in verse 19 of chapter two, he says, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks in the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Again, in verse 21. To enter the caverns of the rocks in the clefts of the cliffs. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Repeatedly, Isaiah is saying in in, in an almost confusing way that these are positive terms. The splendor of his majesty, of his beauty, of his glory is what is crushing those who are in opposition to God. It's from these passages, like Isaiah, that Paul is borrowing in Second Thessalonians to depict the same scene, that it's God's presence and his glory that causes the torment of those. And yet, verse 10, he says, why is God coming? He says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at... Among, among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. He is coming so that those who have placed their trust in Christ, who have united themselves with Christ, can marvel at, can be astounded at, can be overwhelmed positively by the splendor of His majesty. When Paul can come to the end of his life, knowing that his time is coming to an end in 2 Timothy, and says, now I know that there is laid up for me a crown of glory, and not only for me, but for all those who have longed for his appearing. Those who are sealed in Christ, this is what they're longing for. Because when our guilt, when our sin is, is atoned for, when we are clothed in Christ basking in the presence of God is life-giving. Dwelling in the midst of the fire, so to speak, where where God's glory, His presence, is most central and concentrated, will that will be the place where the redeemed will marvel at God. They will be astounded by Him. They will be amazed. They will be blown away. They will be in ecstasy in His presence. Similarly in Second Thessalonians chapter two verse eight, this in the next chapter, Paul describes the lawless one, the, the Antichrist who will arise to lead many astray from the Lord in the end of time. And it says in chapter two, verse eight, and the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What is it that smites the lawless one? The appearance of God, the presence of God. This God showing up and, and no longer allowing his glory to be restrained and hidden, but shining in full strength, unremitting. It will devour the lawless one, it says. Hell is more, is better understood as presence, the presence of God, than as a certain place away from God. Thirdly, God's presence is like a fire. Now here I want to begin to, to look at a few passages in the Old Testament and just see how this idea of, of God as fire, being depicted as fire, evolves throughout the Scripture. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, verse 2, in Moses, he's lured out into the wilderness chasing the sheep of his father-in-law. And he stumbles across a strange sight, he says, is a bush that is on fire and yet it is not consumed, it's not devoured. And if that sounds like a strange scene, it's, it's meant to be because the very thing that fires typically fuel upon is any type of of kindling, of of brush, of of bush. And so the fact that the very thing that you would imagine would be the source of fuel for this fire is completely left intact and unscathed, undamaged, is meant to provoke a bit of confusion. And yet this is the presence of God that, that Moses comes across in the wilderness says an angel of the lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush and he looked and behold the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed now in the same book in the pentateuch the, the same language of of god being a fire and this idea of of consuming is repeated but in a negative light particularly in places like deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 3 Moses says, know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them, your enemies, those who are opposed to Yahweh and the Israelites and his people. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So this same consuming fire, the same language that is used in Exodus chapter three, now we see the fire actually consuming and 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 devouring those who are the enemies of God. When in chapter three, this this defenseless plant which ought to have been consumed by the same fire is completely left intact. There's this duality of what the consuming fire of God causes to happen that we see in the Pentateuch. And that occurs on purpose. The same fire of God that's devouring the enemies of God is the fire in which God's presence is valued and esteemed by Moses here in Exodus chapter 3. Perhaps a more helpful example. If you were familiar with the uh, the writings of the New Testament, the New Testament authors, what event in the Old Testament is used perhaps more than any other as an event that describes to us what the end of time will be like the devouring of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. you look at second Peter chapter three. Peter says that the, the old world the, the ancient world was originally destroyed by the flood of Noah, and even now the world is preserved. Until the day in which it will be destroyed as by fire, like in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Throughout the Old Testament and, and the Psalms and the writings of the prophets, this event is referred to. And even in the New Testament writings, this event is referred to. And something that interesting that happens when we compare this event in Genesis 19 with what happened at Sinai in Exodus 19. Genesis 19 is the account of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by the fire of the Lord. And specifically in chapter 19, verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This fire isn't merely coming out of of nowhere, but specifically it's from the Lord. This is fire that comes from the Lord. It's a bit of a. Awkward way to describe it. That the Lord sends fire out of the Lord to devour the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet it goes on to say in verses 27 and 28. That when Abraham arises that morning and looks out upon the city of Sodom. And sees it being consumed and enveloped by fire. It says in verses 27 to 28. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. Literally, that last word is is kiln, like the smoke of a a kiln, a a pot in which uh, you can burn things with, with fire and soot is left behind. It says literally that when Abraham looked upon the city, he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a kiln. I draw attention to that last phrase there, that last description there, because when God, when Moses goes up on Sinai. When the Lord descends upon the mountain of Sinai in fire, this exact phrase almost verbatim. ...is used to describe the fire that Moses himself enters. The smoke, the presence of God that Moses himself enters. It says in Exodus chapter 19 verse 18... "...Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly." It says, the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. That's the same phrase that just occurred back in Genesis chapter 19. And, and the, the question is, why is the author doing that? It's not by accidents. It's not by, by some random chance that this same phrase is used here in Exodus. But what's strange is that clearly we know that this was a phrase that was used to describe the destruction of the enemies of God, the fire that consumes the enemies of God. And yet, when you come to Exodus chapter 19 and you see this phrase, you force to ask yourself the question, why is this same fire described like the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah? And the answer is because the source of the fire is the same. It is the presence of God Himself, It is the fire that comes from God himself. That while the, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah experience it as destruction. And those who are opposed to the Lord at the end of time will experience it as destruction. Yet Moses is called, he's summoned up onto the mountain to be enveloped by the smoke. To speak with God face to face, it says. To speak with this Lord who has descended in fire yet he is completely unharmed in fact when he descends down from from mount sinai from that place where he was in the presence of god enveloped by the smoke it says that his face is so radiant that it terrifies the people of israel and they ask for him to cover his face whenever he comes and speaks with them When he goes into the presence of God, he he uncovers his face and he he dwells with God face to face. But when he comes back out to the presence of the people, he is so radiant just by being in proximity to this God. That the sinful Israelites are terrified at him. This is where this this idea begins to emerge in the scriptures. This idea that is it's. The presence of God described as fire that causes difference in reactions. Opposite reactions. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 17. Isaiah says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? The answer, he who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands, lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see the land that stretches afar. Here's the problem. Isaiah recognizes that when he thinks of the the, the splendor of God and asks asks himself the question, who can dwell in the presence of the consuming fire? The answer that, that pervades throughout Isaiah, throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, is that no one, no one in and of themselves... Is able to dwell in the presence of God. No one except Christ Himself. There is no one who can completely fulfill these moral requirements, who never look upon evil, who never look upon bloodshed elsewhere, who never tell lies, whose mouths aren't full of deceits, who don't harbor iniquity in themselves. The only person who ever fulfills this description is Christ himself. He is the holy one. He is the only one who is able in and of himself to stand in the presence of God and not be consumed by his own guilt, by his own sin. So how are others able? How are we all the songs that we sing in the of the gospel itself that we will be able to dwell in the presence of God. Those who trust themselves, trust in Christ, that we will be able to dwell with this consuming fire while others are consumed by it. And the last point is just that those who are clothed in Christ are those who delightfully dwell in the midst of the fire those who are clothed in Christ who are united with him in the mystery of a union that is that is that is described using the analogy of marriage that the union between a man and woman when they come together and they are considered one flesh before the eyes of the Lord Paul says and Christ teaches that that the reason the marriage institution was created was largely in part to help us understand this union that those who Confess christ who hide themselves in him who are united with him will experience and they will be clothed by him to dwell in the presence of God It goes all the way back to genesis chapter 3 the fall of man when adam and eve rebel against the lord They are immediately struck with a sense of their own guilt, so much so that when they hear the Lord walking in the midst of the garden, in the midst of paradise, they are repelled by his presence and they hide from him because of their shame. And they realize their own nakedness and guilt. And it's the Lord that has to summon them forth and terrified. Adam comes forth and he gives an account blame shifting the reason why he disobeyed the Lord and he did the advice of his wife and of the serpent. And that scene concludes in verse 21. With the Lord coming to Adam and Eve. And clothing them with skins. So to speak. Some theologians will bring up the fact that. It seems that some animal must have been slaughtered or sacrificed. In order for skins to be provided. To clothe Adam and Eve. But they are clothed. And they are enabled, their their nakedness is covered up and they are able now to dwell with the Lord and to continue fellowship with him, although they are expelled from the garden. This begins a theme that continues to develop throughout the scriptures, the idea of being clothed by God to dwell in his presence. And ever since Genesis 3, when, when we see God tell the woman that, there will come a, a man, a figure of your own line who will reverse the effects of this curse of the fall of this enmity, enmity between you and between the serpent. That this messianic figure will emerge ever since that point in Genesis three. The rest of the scripture sort of is meant to unfold with a, a continual process of. The reader wondering, is this new figure that I encounter in the the scriptures, is, is this person, the Messiah that I'm waiting for, the one that will reverse everything, or are we still awaiting another? And it begins with Noah. Noah is one who is depicted as one who will restart the world, so to speak, that the world will be recreated through Noah as God wipes out the rest of evil humanity and begins over with Noah. Yet the story concludes with a glimpse of of Noah's own sinfulness when he gets drunk off of his own grapes and he lies naked in his tent. And it's his son who comes along, Shem and, and Japheth, who come along and it says, clothe Noah and cover up his nakedness. It's meant to continue this theme that Noah is not the one that we're waiting for. Noah himself is one who is naked and needs to be clothed. Now, interesting enough, this may be something that you don't, maybe haven't heard before, but this is what my, uh, exhortation is, my dissertation is going to be on um, for PhD stuff. The story of Jacob and Esau actually uniquely and, and creatively continues this theme, so to speak. There's certain things that happen in the story of, of Jacob and Esau that when you closely pay attention to how the author describes the scene, it's it becomes very odd from the perspective of one who understands the gospel. The story of, of Jacob and Esau, they, these brothers, they begin in the womb of their mother. And they are, it literally it says that they're crushing one another, so to speak, in their mother's womb. And it's very similar to the language of Genesis 3.15, where the, the offspring of the woman and the serpent are bruising one another and rivaling one another and yet one is described the the seed of the serpent is described as grasping at the heel of the man and what happens in the story of Jacob and Esau when they emerge from the womb Jacob comes out as one who is grasping the heel of Esau and that's not an arbitrary detail that happens in the story but it's meant to stir up these ideas of this sounds awfully similar to Genesis 3.15 And ultimately, what happens in the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau is described as one who is naturally, he's hairy. His whole body is one that that feels like a a garment of hair, him uh, naturally himself. He's born this way. And Esau is described as the one that his father loves. He's the beloved son of his father, and Jacob is not. And in order to obtain the blessing of his father, What Jacob and his mother decide to do is they decide to take skins that would confuse their father, who is old and and, and blind, is, is unable to fully see that they will clothe Jacob with these skins of hair and present him to the father, to his father, who then feels upon Jacob and smells Jacob and all that he feels and smells reminds him of his beloved son Esau. Jacob smells like Esau, he feels like Esau. To Isaac, this is the son that I love, and yet it's Jacob, clothed in coverings that remind the father of the son. This is continuing. Doesn't that often doesn't that sound remarkably close to what we say of the gospel? that why is it that we are able to stand in the presence of God it's not because of our own righteousness it's because we are clothed in Christ when the father sees us when we're when we've hidden ourselves in him when we've united ourselves with him the father sees his beloved son he sees Christ Interesting story in the book of Daniel. I know I'm running out of time here, but I love the story in the book of Daniel and the story of the fiery furnace. When the faithful Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are commanded to worship uh, the idol of Nebuchadnezzar, to worship a false god, they refuse to do so because of their fidelity and and, uh, obedience to Yahweh, to the Lord of glory. And so what Nebuchadnezzar does is he throws them into the fiery furnace. Now, an interesting description in, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 21, it goes, he goes out of his way to say that these figures, when they go into the fire, that they are abundantly clothed. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, And these men bound in their cloaks, And tunics, their hats, and their other garments, they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. That's not just arbitrary detail. That's meant to strike up allusions to this theme that's developing throughout Scripture, that these are figures who are abundantly clothed when they are thrown into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar says, after they are thrown into the fire, in verse 25, he says, he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. He sees these three and with them he sees this fourth. That's like a divine being. And when it says that they're walking in the midst of the fire, that's the same language that's described of Adam and Eve walking with God in the midst of the garden. These figures who are clothed and clearly they are they are clothed in God, God has provided them. That's what it's meant to allude to. They are unscathed by the fire, the same fire that when the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, they even approach, they are consumed by and killed by. It is meant to be one more link in the chain of this theme that develops. That is God's presence himself that causes this fire. Lastly, I just want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Because perhaps this passage in the New Testament summarizes what this theme of being clothed in Christ, it brings it to a head and we see the full development of this this theme in Scripture of being clothed in Christ. When Paul talks about what we will be like in the end time. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that is our body is here and now in this earth, is destroyed, meaning we die. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may be found, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now what he's saying there is our heavenly bodies, when he when he talks about this this tent that is not made by human hands, but God provides it himself, our our resurrected bodies in the new age, that is what we are longing to put on. And he describes the fact that we will no longer be naked. We put on this dwelling so that we won't be found naked as Adam and Eve were in the garden, as Noah was in the tent. This idea of nakedness being covered up is a theme that Paul continues when he describes our heavenly bodies. He says, for while we're still in this tent, our, our normal earthly bodies now, we groan, being burdened, we are afflicted by sin in our consciousness. We do, as he says Otherwise, in other places, we do the things that we wish that we did not. And he says again, that it's not that we will be unclothed in that time, but it's better understood that we will be further clothed in order that we may be swallowed up by life. When he says swallowed up, it's, it's the same verb that appears abundantly throughout the Old Testament of when the enemies of God are swallowed up and devoured by the fire of God. They are consumed by the fire. or When God's judgment causes the ground to open up and to devour the opponents of God, swallow them up. Paul is using that same language, and yet he doesn't say that we will be swallowed up by Fire, although he knows being a Hebrew of Hebrews, a scholar of scholars, that this book is always associated with the fire that consumes those in the presence of God. Yet he uses a different noun here. He says, we will be swallowed up. But by life. Those who are shielded in Christ, who are clothed, further clothed so that their nakedness is covered up they will be swallowed up as well. But what they will experience is better described as life itself in the presence of him who is life. I say all that to say that, again, when it comes to understanding, I was trying to just give a survey of Scripture of how the Bible sort of depicts this end time. When we think of, This great God, that those who are shielded in Christ, who are covered in Christ, that they are longing for his appearing, that they are waiting to marvel at him, that it's this same presence, it's the same presence that's described as a fire that fills all of the cosmos, that is at the essence of what hell is for those who do not embrace Christ, who are not... Found in him, we're not hidden in him and shielded from this devouring flame, so to speak. God's goodness is not contradicted in the doctrine of hell, but it's a necessary aspect. If God comes in the fullness of his glory, to some it will be a wonder and an amazement, of beauty. To others, they will experience it as everlasting punishment. Let's pray, Father. I know the tension that we all feel so often with the difficult doctrines of Your Word. The things that are difficult to swallow, difficult for us to understand and to grasp. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to to see that there is no inconsistency in your goodness. With the idea that when you show up in the full display of your glory, which is the, the delight, the craving of all those who have tasted of your glory, who want to see you, who want to behold your beauty, as Isaiah said, Undiminished, untarnished, unrestrained. That it is this same good thing. That will consume those who continue in the rebellion against you. Who do not seek their refuge in the Messiah. in the one who is perfect. And the only one who is able in and of himself to stand in your presence. And to thrive. And Lord, I pray that it would just increase our our longing for eternity and also just increase our, our zeal to share with those and to be unashamed of the gospel that we proclaim. To share with those who do not know you, who are opposed to you, the reality of this day that is coming, that Isaiah foresaw in the year that King Uzziah died, when all of heaven and earth will be full of your glory. When those will, who who know you will incessantly overwhelm with praise and overflow with praise, so that day is coming. Lord, let it increase our zeal in evangelism, of sharing with those the hope that is offered now, life that is offered now to all who would have it. And may your name be glorified as you hasten that day.